I'm fighting a little bit of a cold this morning, so if I, I've always wanted this really deep preacher's voice, and I never have one, and I have a little bit of one this morning, but it's not necessarily because I, I, uh, I would like it with a little bit of cold, but we'll work through that. Uh, we're going through Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 25 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 28. Have I ever told you that my brother tried to kill me with a baseball bat? That's a true story. My brother hit me right smack dab in the head. When I was 11 years old, my brother took a baseball bat and just whacked me upside the head. Now, there's a little more to the story than just that, but I like to play the victim as much as anybody else, so uh, I thought I would lead with that part. The truth is that we were playing in our backyard. We had this old beat-up tetherball, and there were a bunch of us in the backyard, probably about 10 or 15 of us, and, uh, and, and hockey had just come to St. Louis, and we didn't have our hockey sticks yet, but we kind of learned about it. So we were taking this baseball bat and playing, playing hockey with a tether ball and with baseball bats. And my brother took a swing at the ball, and I was coming towards it, and he missed the ball. And my head and the bat got right about there at the, at the same time. And my dad came running out the backyard because I'm screaming, I'm laying on the ground, there's blood everywhere. And I remember hearing my brother saying at the top of his voice, I didn't mean it, I didn't mean it, I wasn't trying to do it. And uh, dad had this look in his eye like, uh, well, he got that look that dads get every once in a while. Uh, but, you know, that, that kind of stuff happens in families. And, and when, you think about, when you think about the family, when you think about whether it's brothers and sisters or, or cousins or aunts and uncles or, or grandparents, there's all kinds of emotions uh, that go with that. You know, family relationships range from, you know, blood is thicker than water, these lifelong strong bonds, all the way to, to alienation. You know, I haven't spoken to that sibling in years uh, or haven't, uh, I've lost touch with my parents. We don't interact anymore. There, there, there are all kinds of different experiences. In this room alone, in, in, in a couple hundred people, if we kind of all walked up and prayed it across the stage and talked about our family, there would be, there'd be stories that would make our hearts break and cry for joy. And there are others that would make us cry for, for disappointment and sadness for what we've experienced in family. Much of the book of Genesis is, is told in the story of family. If you go through the book of Genesis, you'll notice there's a phrase that's repeated over and over again. It actually shows up about 10 different times in the book of Genesis. And it's the phrase, these are the generations of, and then there'll be a name uh, attached to that part of the story. So the very first one you see back early in Genesis is these are the generations uh, of Adam. And then you'll see a little bit later on, these are the generations of Noah. And you'll see a little bit later on, these are the generations of Seth. Uh, the passage we're going to start with this morning says, these are the generations uh, of Isaac. Uh, Genesis looks at life in many ways through the story of family. Uh, and so we're going to do that for the next uh, three out of the next four weeks. We're going to look at what we can learn from the family of Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac is the only child of Abraham. He's the child of the promise. Uh, God promised Abraham that he would have uh, through Isaac that, that his uh, children couldn't be counted. His offspring, the generations, would be as many as the sands of the seashore. Uh, he, he promised Abraham through Isaac that all the, the nations of the world would be blessed through his offspring. So this is, is the child of the promise. And we're going to look at his family uh, for, for three of the next uh, four weeks to see what we can learn about family in general. Uh, because I think the, the passages of Scripture... Uh, teach us not just about these individuals, but they're a reflection of our lives and how we uh, stand in need of the grace of God as well. So Genesis chapter 25, uh, this morning we're going to be reading verses 19 through 28. You can follow along on the screen or follow along in a, in a Bible if you have one. Hear the word of God. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, 
Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Arminian of Padam Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Arminian. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, is this, uh, if this is thus what is happening to me. So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples form within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we begin uh, this uh, sub-journey in, in, in a larger journey in Genesis, uh, looking at this particular family unit. Father, we will see uh, your hand of grace and of mercy, and we will see uh, some really great decisions uh, and some really awful ones. Father, the book of Genesis is, is a reflection of, of this world. Uh, the people in Genesis are people like us, uh, people who are flawed and people who uh, at times, long to serve you and, and get it right and follow you. Uh, the people in Genesis are a reflection of, of this world. Uh, the people in Genesis are people like us, uh, people who are flawed and people who uh, at times long to serve you and, and get it right and follow you and, and rejoice in that. At other times, they, they go miserably off course. Uh, so, Lord, we don't want to sit in judgment of them this morning. We don't look at them and say, boy, they should have known better. Father, nor do we want to despair when we see them getting it right and think that we could never do that. Lord Jesus, your message to Isaac, to his family, is your message to us today. It is a message of grace. It's a message of forgiveness. Uh, and we long to hear that message in all its fullness. Father, I can't possibly accomplish that. Uh, this is your word. It is perfect. And I am imperfect. But I pray that you would forgive my sin. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move me out of the way and would come and would teach us uh, all that you want us to know this morning uh, for the growth of your kingdom and for the nourishment of our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to give you five observations about this particular family this morning. Uh, they're in no particular order of importance. They simply are in order of how the, the passage unfolds. Uh, and this is kind of a do-what-you-will uh, with these observations. Uh, I think there's some, as we're going to see, there's some, some very positive things upon which we can build. I think there's probably also one or two negative uh, things that, that probably ought to be avoided if at all possible. 
so this morning, as we look at these observations, you can uh, apply them to, to your life. Maybe you're a, a parent that you're raising kids now. Maybe you're empty nesters. Maybe you're single, but you have siblings of your own, adult children or adult brothers and sisters of your own or adult parents. Uh, there are lots of different ways to, uh, to apply uh, this passage to our lives this morning. So let me give you these observations. The first observation I have is there's a praying husband in this passage. In verse 21, uh, the author of Genesis, Moses, writes this about one of his forefathers. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, I got to tell you right off the bat, this is not as quite as simple as it sounds. It sounds like, you know, one morning Isaac woke up and, and Rebecca said, boy, I wish I was pregnant. And Isaac said, okay, well, I'm getting ready to go on my quiet time. And he prayed for a couple minutes and boom, uh, Rebecca became pregnant. But if you read the passage carefully, uh, it says earlier, verse that we've read, I'm not going to put back up on the screen, that when Isaac and Rebecca got married, uh, Isaac was 40 years old. But if you read a little bit further after uh, it talks about the birth of the two sons, Isaac was 60 years old when those boys were born. 20 years between marriage and giving birth. Think about that for just a moment. That's a, that's a long time. Think about maybe the first uh, one, two, or three years. You know, there probably isn't too much panic. It's, you know, well, we just need to get settled in, and we're sure that, that at some point Rebecca will conceive. We know she longs to have children. We know Isaac longs to have children. We know they understand the promise of God is that they will. Uh, so the first year, the first two years, the first three years, probably, probably not too stressful yet in their relationship. But as you get into year four, you get into year five, year six, you know, Rebecca probably begins to think, what's wrong? Isaac maybe begins to have a few doubts going through his mind, and yet we see here that Isaac is a man of prayer. And the word that uh, Moses chooses to use, this word prayer, is an interesting word uh, because it's a word that, that means a fervent supplication. It means a, a passionate prayer. It means that he is pouring his heart and his soul into this prayer. Uh, the next time you'll see this type of word used is actually in the book of Exodus, and it's actually used about Moses when Moses prays to God uh, every time the plagues come into Egypt and Pharaoh repents and says, no, I, we'll, we'll, we'll quit, we'll stop. Moses goes and he prays fervently. He prays with passion that the plague would cease. Same word used here in Genesis 25. This is a passionate, it's an intense type of prayer, which again is pretty astounding to me because it goes on for, you got to figure, at least 15 years. You know, there came a moment where, where Isaac said, we got to make this a matter of prayer. And it wasn't just for a morning. It wasn't just for a day. It wasn't just for a week or for a year, but it was for, you know, a decade and then some. And I look at my life, my prayer life, and I have to ask the question, as, as a husband, is my house, is my home a house of prayer? Has Isaac led his family well in this particular instance in his life? He was a man who, when he was faced with an obstacle, went to his Lord. And he spent time praying to him. And I think about that as, as my family and your families face obstacles. We face challenges. We have opportunities that come our way. All types of different human experiences. Is prayer at the foundation of my home? If my house is going to be a house of prayer, you can call me a sexist if you want to. But I will tell you right now that I think it is absolutely imperative that I lead that process in my family. Husbands of Green Tree Community Church, are you 
men of prayer? Are you creating houses of prayer in the homes in this community in which God has called you to be the servant leader of your family? If husbands don't pray, it makes it awfully difficult for others to follow. It could be awkward to begin with. I remember when Cindy and I first started praying together, I got convicted about this just a few years into our marriage. And so we started praying together. We never prayed together on dates. And you think about that, we were, we were a Christian couple all those years. We never prayed together. So a few years into our marriage, I got convicted. I started praying. It was the most awkward thing in the world. I don't know if anybody, you don't have to raise your hand if you want. Has any other man in this room had that experience? It is so, thank you for, got one brother there to, to testify with me. It was tough. You know, and I'm a professional prayer. I've been in ministry all my adult life. I can pray any place. If they call me to pray to Billy Graham crusade in front of 100,000 people, I go and do it in a heartbeat. And there's this beautiful little blonde, and I'm scared to death to pray in front of her. What's she going to think of me? We started praying, and it felt weird. It felt like putting a left shoe on a right foot. <laughs> but eventually, over time, it got a little better. It got a little more comfortable. It got a little easier. And now it's like falling off a log. It's the easiest thing in the world. We pray together. And I, I, we don't pray together all the time. But every morning when I'm leaving the house before her, I kneel next to our bed. I pray for her. I pray for our kids. And I pray for you guys too. I'll think of one or two of you and stuff that I know that's going on. And we'll, and we'll pray for you guys. And then I'm, I'm out the door and off my day and she's out the door and off her day. But husbands, there's a praying husband in this passage. I think it's a great example. I ask all my engaged couples if they're praying together or if they're not, I say, start, start today. And again, it, feel, it feels like I say, it always feels like a, a right, right shoe on a left foot, but you start today and God will bless that in your family. That's a, that's a great observation about this particular family. And it obviously wasn't just the husband. Look at verse 22 where we experience not only a praying husband, but a praying expectant mother. The children uh, struggle within her after she conceived. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Rebecca realized something was going on there. There's a lot of tumult going on. Now, I have never been pregnant, and I'm thankful that I never will be pregnant. I don't have to go through that experience. But I've seen it three times with, with, with our family and with lots of other families. And it's not unusual for there to be kind of a tumultuous pregnancy. It's not unusual for women to be very uncomfortable as they're carrying children. But this is something different. This is something that, that has gotten Rebecca's attention after, I don't know, maybe three, four, five months to the point where she's worried, to the point where she's concerned. Why, why is there never any rest within my womb? What on earth is going on? You know, perhaps she talked to some of the other women in that particular community who had carried children. She said, did this happen to you? And let me, let me tell you what I'm feeling. Let me tell you what I'm experiencing. Uh, and to see some of those women probably say, well, yeah, maybe, but, but boy, it doesn't, that, that wasn't my experience, not quite to that extent. So she goes to the Lord. She begins to pray. And again, I would simply ask the question to, to the moms of Green Tree Community Church. In your family, are you women of prayer? Are you praying for your kids? Are you living out your faith in, in partial ways through your prayer life? It's, that's the, uh, I could tell you about a lot of examples my mom set for me in my life, but that's one that probably is way above all the other ones, is the fact that she uh, was and continues to be a woman of prayer. She prays for uh, her own three children. She prays for her nine grandchildren. Uh, she doesn't have any uh, great-grandchildren yet, but she'll pray for them. If you go through her Bible, if, if you open her Bible, she would have names of kids and grandchildren. And then all my cousins, she prays for all my cousins on both sides of the family, her side, my dad's side. She prayed for all the neighborhood kids. I, my friend Tom Woods sitting here this morning, Tommy, I know my mom prayed for you all your life because you just happened to be in our neighborhood. I mean, 
my mom prays for kids like just there's no tomorrow. What a great example. <laughs> what an amazing thing that I could say, you know, I had a mom who prayed. I believe this is a great example for, for us as families. But then there's also an opportunity for Rebecca to trust God. Look at verse 23. She goes and she inquires the Lord, say, Lord, what's going on? And I think that's a great prayer. God, why is this happening? Don't be afraid to pray that to the Lord. If you're not sure about the circumstance, for Rebecca to trust God. Look at she inquires the Lord, say, Lord, what's going on? And I think that's a great prayer. God, why is this happening? Don't be afraid to pray that to the Lord. If you're not sure about the circumstances of your life, if you're looking at it and going, man, this picture looks a little weird. You know what? Go to God. Say, Lord, what's happening? Rebecca's, that's her prayer. God, why is this happening? And the Lord answered her, and he says, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall serve the strong, excuse me, the one shall be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. God gives Rebecca an explanation, but now it's up to Rebecca to react to what God has spoken. She must determine how she's going to process this because there are potential problems with this answer, and it calls for faith on Rebecca's part, to trust in God. She's not living in a vacuum. She knows the family history. She met her father-in-law, Abraham. She spent time with him before he passed away. She knew her mother-in-law, Sarah. She knew God's promises that through her uh, relationship with Isaac, uh, that the offspring of, of Abraham's descendants were going to continue. She knew that this was a promise, but was she going to trust You know, it it creates problems in this society for the younger one to serve the older one. It didn't ever work that way. And this is, there's all kinds of potential challenges here. And yet she has to, she has to be willing to step back and say, I don't know everything that God knows, but I know enough that I can trust him. So the question is, as her life unfolds, is she going to be not only be a mom who prays for kids, but a mom who trusts God, even when the answer maybe creates a little bit of tension in her life? But the question goes beyond that. Not just will Rebecca trust God, but will we trust him? Because we have circumstances in our lives that are beyond our control. We have issues like, like something like this that present themselves to us on a fairly regular basis where it, it, they're, they're protected to God, but will we trust him? Will we trust him? Because we have circumstances in our lives that are beyond our control. We have issues like, like something like this that present themselves to us on a fairly regular basis where it, it, they're, they're... But the question goes beyond... Because we have circumstances in our lives that are beyond our control. We have issues like, like something like this that present themselves to us on a fairly regular basis where it, it, there, there are potential challenges on all sides. Do we trust God in that process? Do we keep our focus fixed on him. We have much more than Rebecca had. We have all of the scriptures now. We have, we're on the, on the other side of the cross of Christ. We, we see the gospel in all of its fullness. We've trusted in him, many of us, for salvation and for redemption. Do we trust him on a daily basis? And do we give our children an example of that trust? That's the question that's before Rebecca. Now that you have the answer, what are you going to do with it? Um, early on in, in when I started in youth ministry, I worked at Lookout Mountain Press, and the pastor there was a guy named George Long, and I think I may have told you before, he was a World War II fighter pilot. He f- flew in the uh, European Theater of Operations, and, and uh, when he uh, got out of the service, he and another guy bought an airplane, and they would fly around, and occasionally I would fly with him up to St. Louis, or we would uh, go on a trip somewhere in the southeast, and I figured out really quick that I couldn't look at or what was going on around me to get my comfort. 
You know, you hit some of those air pockets in a small four-seat plane, and you can drop 100 feet just like that. You can go up 100 feet just like that. And you can't base your emotions on that kind of experience. At least I couldn't. I'm not, I'm not brave enough, you know. So you're, you're flying over the north, mountains of North Carolina, and all of a sudden they're a whole lot closer than you want them to be. And I learned pretty quick that if I looked around me and, and just reacted to, to the, the shaking and the movement of the plane, it was going to be a pretty miserable flight. But if I looked at Dr. Long and I watched how he reacted, I would know if there was a time to panic. Because <laughs> Dr. Long, I mean, we'd be flying along, we'd go, boom, and he'd just be humming. He'd just be having a good old time. He'd like, hey, Tom, you have, hey, Tom, you want to fly this thing for a little while? No, I really don't think I do want to fly this thing for a little while. You know, and he'd go, hey, you want to know what it's like for a plane to stall up? And he wouldn't wait for the answer. He'd just take off and he'd roll back over. And he'd be laughing and I'd be crying and saying things that I shouldn't say as a, as a, as a person who worked for a church. And he'd turn it back over and he said, wasn't that so much fun? And he was just as calm as could be. As long as he was okay, I was okay. That's what I finally figured out. And God's made a promise to Rebecca, and the promise has some potential pitfalls in it. But if she keeps her eye on God, it'll be okay. Because God doesn't plan destructive things for his children. God doesn't plan to harm his children. He cares for them. Even if he presents us with challenges that sometimes feel a little bit out of control. It's what the author C.S. Lewis said in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan the Christ figure. He's not a safe lion, but he is good. And Rebecca has a good God who loves her and loves her family. She now has the opportunity to trust. Now, I also wanted the, my fourth observation, and I just wanted to use this word. I'm sorry. I, I just kind of wanted to have a little fun. I, the, my fourth observation is there's evidence of omnipotence. I just wanted to say omnipotence. It's just such a cool word. I just like to say, everybody say omnipotence. Omnipotence. Oh, a little more enthusiasm. Come on. Omnipotence. All right. Omnipotence is a big word that simply means you know everything. It means you're everywhere all the time and there's nothing outside of your knowledge. There's nothing outside of your purview. And God demonstrates his omnipotence to Sarah in this experience. Look at verses 24 through 26. God said, there's two nations fighting in your womb. When her days had come to give birth, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Do you see God demonstrating his control, his omnipotence, even in the birth process? God had said that the older would serve the younger. And here's the younger one clasping at the older one's heel, even as they come down the birth canal and even as they're born into this world as if to say, no, there's going to be something different than normal around here. And God, even in the process of birth, reminds Sarah, reminds his child that he knows all, he sees all, and he will care for her and that his plan is not going to be thwarted. I think as a, as, a, as a father, that's one of the great things I can teach my children is that you can trust God, that you can take him at his word all of the time, 100% of the time. One of the applications for that in me has been to try and be a man of my word with my children. It's try to help them understand that if I say something positive, I mean it. If I say I'm going to be at their ball game, I'm going to be at their ball game. I don't tell them I'm going to be there if I'm not going to be there. 
And I also tell them when something negative happens, you know, if you do that, they're there's going to be a spanking or there's going to be a timeout. I don't say that to hear myself talk. I want them to know that I, I'm going to follow through with what I say because I want them to know that they can trust a father because at some point in their life, they're going to have to make a decision about the one who claims to be their heavenly father. And at that moment, I don't want them to think, well, you know what? My experience with dads tells me that I can't trust them. And so I'm going to reject this notion of Christianity. God's omnipotence should have a very direct influence in the way in which we live our lives. We live lives of trust because God means what he says. And he demonstrates it to Sarah even in the process of birth. And then my last observation about this family this morning is that mom and dad end up, they started well, but they create a little bit of conflict or potential for conflict. Now look at verses 27 uh, and 28. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You know, they they started off so well. They started off, you know, Isaac's praying for Sarah. Sarah's inquiring of the Lord. God is is showing himself faithful. We seem to be going in a good direction. And then it's almost like God said, I want to give you a lesson on how not to be parents. (laughs) I want to show you how not to do it. Because we see in this passage, it's not that, that, that they're enjoying the differences between their children. It's not that they're, they're celebrating the unique character and personality of their kids, but literally their emotions and their hearts are more attached to one child than the other. And so we have beginning to see a picture created for the opportunity for conflict and division to arise within this family. I don't know exactly what their motives were, It could have been that uh, Rebecca more favored Jacob because she knew the promise that Jacob was was one day going to lead the clan and and he was going to be in charge of of all of this and she wanted to instill within him some some form of her character. It could have been that uh, that she saw Isaac's love for Esau. It seemed that that, that Isaac from from, uh, Esau's earliest days, maybe Isaac looked like he was playing favorites to Esau and so she felt that she needed to counterbalance that. And she felt that she needed to make sure that Isaac didn't, or, or that Jacob didn't feel left out. I don't know what Isaac's motives were. Scripture doesn't say. Perhaps he too knew the promise that God had given Rebecca. I'm sure they talked about it. I'm sure Rebecca said, you know, I, I've got this weird pregnancy going on and I prayed and here's what God told me. What do you think about that? It could be that Isaac's got that in the back of his mind and he feels sorry for, for uh, Esau. And he wants to overcompensate and he deals with God's promise perhaps by giving this child more attention than he should and by attaching himself emotionally more to Esau than to Jacob. I don't know what their motives are. Quite frankly, their motives don't matter that much. What matters is the potential chaos they are creating within their family by not loving their children equally. We all know if we've been parents of of more than one child for for more than two or three years that our kids are going to fight, right? Our kids are going to tussle. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to do it out of fun sometimes, but there are going to be moments where they, where they get at loggerheads and they go at it with one another. Isn't that true? And those of us who have grown up in a home with brothers or sisters knows, we know that that's accurate as well. Uh, I have a 26 year old son who's going to be ordained as a deacon in this church today. And he and his 18 year old brother cannot walk past each other without somebody pushing somebody. <laughs> and one push turns into two pushes. And two pushes turns into a little bit harder shove. And all of a sudden, we got to go to the furniture store and buy new furniture because they can't keep their hands off each other. You know that kind of stuff is going to happen. 
you don't need to, to create an atmosphere where it happens more than it ought to. Whatever their motives were, either way, neither of these parents exercised good judgment nor trust in God. They could have built unity within their family. They could have laid a foundation in which their boys would have learned to appreciate and to love each other. Instead, they created an atmosphere of disunity and disharmony, which will plague this family all of their lives, and in fact will plague their greater families throughout all generations. It's important for us to understand that as husbands, as wives, as family members, our maturity of faith matters. They started out well in this passage, and there seems to be such a disconnect in their relationship with their children as opposed to their relationship with God. And it shows their faith. It certainly does in their prayer lives, but it also shows the lack thereof. It shows their inability to connect the dots. And I think that God describes Rebecca and Isaac to us in this passage because he wants to also describe us. He wants to show us a picture of ourselves. I'm not saying that every parent in this room has done this and played favorites with their children, but there are places where we fall short. There are places where we need the grace of God in our lives as well. And Isaac and Rebecca are not the heroes of this story. The Lord God, the God who has made the covenant promise is the hero. The one who's going to work in spite of their lack of faith, not because of their faith. 